I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we dig down to the underlying ideals of scripture in order to help us to apply them in our world. Three weeks ago, we finished up the first half of the ten words, the five ideals that dealt with our relationship to God in various ways. These five ideals exploring everything from worshiping Him alone to showing honor to His appointed authorities on earth. Ideals that expand on the first and greatest command according to Yeshua. You shall love Hashem your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the first five words are the first level of extrapolation of that command. And Deuteronomy 6-18 through 18 extrapolated each of these five ideals even more to a deeper and deeper level. Ways that we can extrapolate these commands and apply them to our own lives. Then, in chapter 19, we entered the book of Deuteronomy's expansion of the final five commands. These five commands be an expansion of the other half of the coin of the most important command, how to love your neighbor as yourself, a command that was first stated outright in Leviticus 19. And as we find these commands extrapolated in the pages of Deuteronomy, we find a few things that should catch our attention. First off, the seventh word does not have its own isolated section in the pages of Deuteronomy like all nine of the other ideals do. Instead, as we proceed through the text of these final five words, we find scattered throughout each of the other four items connected directly to theft. Deuteronomy 19.14 speaks of not moving your neighbor's boundary line in the midst of a section on just what it means and how to extrapolate the command that you should not murder. Deuteronomy 22.1-4 speaks on what to do when you encounter your neighbor's lost property or when his property is in danger. But this passage is nestled nicely in the midst of a section that is dealing with the idea of adultery and how to avoid it. In this Parsha, Deuteronomy 23, 24-25 speaks of when you are passing through a field that you do not own, that it is permissible to eat your fill using what you can gather with your hands, but you cannot use a tool to harvest it in any way. And in the final section on envy, it's Deuteronomy 24-7 that most closely fits the ideal of theft. When a man kidnaps another man. When a person unrighteously takes the freedom of another, especially when that freedom is then used for personal profit. Now, we should recognize that in the passage on envy, there are a lot of candidates for a passage on theft, as it's envy that leads to theft. But this particular one seems to be the best match. And this ideal, as we consider it and how it's scattered throughout the extrapolation of the other ideals, we find is connected to each one. Murder is the theft of the life of another, taking their life from them and from everyone that knows them before their time. Adultery is the theft of covenant from another, whether it is the theft of a covenant partner or the breaking of your own covenant with your spouse. 
But adultery is more than just sex with a married person, as we saw reflected in the last section. Rather, it's the introduction of something common or something defiled into something that is holy. False witness is the theft of another's reputation, sharing something about a person that damages the reality of the person and damages the perception that others have of them. And the final word, do not envy? Well, it's envy that is the root cause of theft, the impetus that leads to the taking of something that is not ours. And so this week, when we would expect to see a section of the text dedicated to theft, we do not. Instead, we find a discussion of bearing false witness. So while the ten words are able to be split into two columns with the headings of love God and love your neighbor, when we really dig into the ten words from this view, we discover that there is a parallelism going on in this text as well with these ten words. The first word speaking on a topic as directed towards God, and then the sixth speaking on the same topic as directed towards man. Ideal 2 speaking on a theme in regards of our relationship to Adonai, and then the seventh ideal speaking on the same thematic element in regards to human relationships, and so on. The first and the second columns of the commands working together to provide a foundational connective themes that are unspoken. So when we examine it in this way and we compare I am Hashem your God and do not murder, we recognize that both are connected to acknowledging the existence and the right to exist of all others. Transgressing this idea in either realm speaks to the denial of the existence of another. Do not make graven images and do not commit adultery. All through scripture we find these ideals related together. Idolatry is the same as committing adultery on God. It's taking that intimate connection that should be reserved for our relationship to the one that we are in covenant with. Do not take the name of Hashem in vain and do not steal. Well, when we looked at the third word, we saw that it had more to do with properly bearing the image of God. And so how does theft connect? Well, what is the one thing that you can take from the one who owns all things? The only thing that you can steal from him is his reputation or how others view his character. You can make him seem lesser than he truly is. The one thing that we can take of his in this world is his name. And when we do so in vain, we are in reality stealing from him. And this week we find the fourth word, keeping the Sabbath, connected to the ideal of not bearing false witness. Keeping the Sabbath is the act that God points to as how we are to begin to speak to the world of who he is. It was him that made the day holy in the in creation. It is the day that he rested by ascending his throne and then ruling over his kingdom that he had brought peace to. And the Sabbath is much greater than simply taking a day off work. It speaks of God in several ways. In Exodus, the Sabbath was connected to creation in its counting of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Sabbath was connected to the release from slavery and oppression. The two primary witnesses of our God. The God of creation. The God of redemption and release from bondage. You see, the ten words, as these items are only ever named in Scripture, they're much deeper than they might seem on the surface. These ideals are profound and foundational, but they are just a foundation. They are meant to be extrapolated, to be applied in various ways in our own experience. And knowing the underlying ideal that knits the second column to the first can be extremely helpful. So with this in mind, 
Let's read this Parsha and then discuss further this idea of bearing witness and how we can be true in our witness to the world. Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 24, 4. He who is wounded by crushing of testicles or whose penis is cut off shall not enter into the community of Hashem. A mamzer shall not enter the community of Hashem. Even a tenth generation of his shall not enter the community of Hashem. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of Hashem. Even a tenth generation of them shall not enter the assembly of Hashem. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Bilam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Aram Naharaim, to curse you. But Hashem your Elohim refused to listen to Bilam, and Hashem your Elohim turned the curse into a blessing for you, because Hashem your Elohim loves you. Do not seek their peace nor their good all your days forever. Do not loathe an Edomite, for he is your brother. Do not loathe a Mitzrayim, because you were a stranger in his land. The children of the third generation born to them do enter the assembly of Hashem. When the camp goes out against your enemies, then you shall guard yourself from every evil matter. When there is any man among you who is not clean because of an omission in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. Let him not come into the midst of the camp. And it shall be at the approach of evening that he bathes with water. And when the sun sets, let him come into the midst of the camp. And you shall have a place outside the camp where you shall go out. And you shall have a sharp implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your excrement. For Hashem your Elohim walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore your camp shall be set apart so that he does not see unclean matter among you and shall turn away from you. You do not hand over to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. Let him dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it is pleasing to him. Do not oppress him. None of the daughters of Israel is to be a cult prostitute, nor any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. Do not bring the harlot fee of a whore or the pay of a dog into the house of Hashem your Elohim for any vowed offering, for both these are an abomination to Hashem your Elohim. Do not lend it interest to your brother, interests of silver, interest of food, or interest of whatever is lent at interest. To a foreigner you lend it interest, but to your brother you do not lend it interest, so that Hashem your Elohim might bless you in all that you put your hand to in the land which you are entering to possess. When you make a vow to Hashem your Elohim, do not delay to pay it, for Hashem your Elohim is certainly requiring it of you, and it shall be sin in you. But when you abstain from vowing, it is not sin in you. That which has gone from your lips you shall guard and do, for you voluntarily vowed to Hashem your Elohim what you have promised with your mouth. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you shall eat to the satisfaction of your desire, but do not put any in a receptacle of yours. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you shall pluck the heads with your hand, but do not use the sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. When a man takes a wife and shall marry her, then it shall be, if she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found a matter of uncoveredness in her, and he shall write her a certificate of divorce, and put it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And if she left his house and went and became another man's wife, and the latter husband shall hate her and write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his house, or when the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that would be an abomination before Hashem. And do not bring sin on the land, which Hashem your Elohim is giving you as an inheritance. 
The opening of chapter 23 in the book of Deuteronomy has for some time caused no end of consternation in the church. No, not because the numbering of the verses is different between the Hebrew and the Western Bibles. There is a one verse difference between translations, so if my verse numbers appear to be off for you, simply add one to what I say as the verse number and you'll be right there with me. But this is not where the problem arises for the modern church. The problem with this chapter is because of how this chapter has been understood and applied throughout history, both by those who are part of the church and by those who fight against the church and the Bible and have misused this chapter in order to demonstrate prejudice towards some. These verses have been used to create a class of outcasts throughout history that never should have been. But we know for a fact that the opening verse of this chapter cannot mean what we assume them to mean on a simple surface reading. How do we know? Well, the initial invitation and covenant with Abraham was for the entire world to be blessed, and the invitation to be part of Israel was always extended to those of foreign birth. Ger were always welcome. Yet here in the beginning of chapter 23, we seem to find all sort of exemptions to this idea. Nations that are prevented from worshiping. Classes of people not allowed to join. What exactly is going on here, especially when we find other passages that seem to contradict these instructions outright, the most recognizable being Isaiah 56, 1-8. Thus says Hashem, Guard justice and do righteousness, for near is my salvation to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who becomes strong in it, guarding the Sabbath lest he profane it and guarding his hand from doing any evil. And let not the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to Hashem speak, saying, Hashem has certainly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Look, I am a dry tree. For thus said Hashem to the eunuchs who guard my Sabbath and have chosen what pleases me and are holding on to my covenant. To them I shall give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I give them an everlasting name that is not cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to Hashem to serve him and to love the name of Hashem to be his servants, all who guard the Sabbath and not profane it and are holding on to my covenant. Them I shall bring into my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their ascending offerings and their sacrifices are accepted on my altar, for my house is called a house of prayer for all peoples. The master Hashem who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I gather still others to him besides those who are gathered to him. In this passage, Hashem clearly says that those from the nations and the eunuchs are not cast off. They are not cut off from Israel or a dry tree. They have become outcasts in Israel. But this passage seems to indicate that this was never to be the outcome of this passage in Deuteronomy. And so we're left with several options. Either we misunderstand the purpose of Deuteronomy 23, God changed his mind later, which itself contradicts scripture, or the masses have this right and there are classes of people who are to be prevented from entering into Israel. So which is easier? Occam's razor, right? The simplest solution is usually the correct one. The solution of God changing his mind, well, that's easier for us as people. It means that we don't have to work any harder to understand what Deuteronomy 23 means. At one time, God meant what he said, and then later he changed his mind what he said for whatever reason, and now God means what he says. 
Who are you to question God, right? See, it's simple. Just ignore it and it goes away. Now, the harder solution is to have to dig into the text of Deuteronomy 23 to determine if there is perhaps something that we are missing. Because there has to be something that we're missing. The God of Israel, as we have already seen in nearly every other place in the Torah, is a God who cares for the vulnerable and the outcast. He holds the ger, the stranger, to the same standard as he holds the native-born of Israel. He provides solutions for the disenfranchised and for those who have been victimized. Why would he then give commands that seem designed to create a class of outcasts and victims? Well, let's dig in and see if we can determine what this series of commands might be hinting at. And while we're at it, we need to remember that these verses have to do with bearing false witness about someone or something, and I think that can help us in our search. And so as we dig, there are a few questions that we need to ask. First off, what was the purpose of castration in the ancient Near East? Second, how should we understand the phrase, enter into the congregation or assembly of Israel? These two questions might help us to nail down just exactly what is being spoken of here, because I find it highly likely in light of Isaiah 56 that we simply don't fully understand what's being spoken of in these verses. So let's look at the first item. Now, in the ancient Near East, there were two main reasons for the castration of a male through either crushing or cutting as described in these verses. But please understand that both means were used to intentionally castrate men and boys. Now, the first reason is the one that is the most commonly found in the Hebrew. In fact, the word for eunuch, saras, is a word that is derived from the Akkadian expression shareshi, which means he who is head chief. And it's from this word and its origin that we find the first reason that men would be castrated in the ancient Near East. You see, in the ancient Near East, it became popular for anyone who served in a governmental capacity near the king to be castrated in some nations. The purpose for this was so that they would not have their attention divided by family or pleasure. Their pleasure was to be found in the service to the king alone. According to David G. Burke, a historian and scholar who worked on the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, eunuchs filled nearly every role of kingly service, including, but not limited to, personal aides, guards, generals, governors, and harem supervisors. A eunuch was a person whose whole purpose, whose whole life was lived in service to their king. They were not a threat and they could not take the throne because they were unable to provide heirs to the throne. And so they were trusted with all matters of the king and the kingdom. But there was a second role for the eunuch in the ancient Near East, and that was as a priest in the temple of a goddess. You see, the worship of many goddesses included sexual rites, and a eunuch could serve in that role. As Catherine Ringrose notes in her book, Eunuchs in Historical Perspective, boys castrated before puberty remained beardless, with a fresh complexion, and with fat deposits characteristic of women. They often seem to exhibit unusually long arms and legs and a tall, frail frame. Their voices did not change, but remained high-pitched. Their hair appeared thick and luxuriant and did not fall out as they aged. And their beauty was admired since they preserved their youthful look for longer than usual. And because of this, the eunuch, who served as a temple prostitute, became known colloquially 
as dogs. Something that we find referred to later in the Parsha in chapter 23, verse 18. Added to this, there was a lot of value put on people being able to have children in Israel and throughout the ancient Near East. Because this was a directive that was given at creation and at the new creation of the world after the flood, to be fruitful and multiply. A man who was a eunuch was seen as lesser, and the inability to bring forth life spoke poorly of the God of life. So as we see, there is a theme that underlines the ancient understanding of the purpose of a eunuch. They were people who were dedicated to a false deity. Or they were people who were at one time tasked with allegiance to a kingdom outside of Israel. The unspoken idea behind this being that a person who has previously served in a position of allegiance to another king, nation, or God is not to be allowed into the Kahal of Israel. So what does this mean? What is the Kahal? Well, this word is usually translated as congregation or assembly. So who exactly does this include? What is it that eunuchs were prevented from participating in? Now, the Hebrew word kahal most concretely means any gathering of people together. We see it applied in various ways throughout the Hebrew Bible. This word is not used for the day-to-day interactions of people. This word is reserved for specific gatherings. Throughout Deuteronomy, the events at Mount Sinai are referred to as the time of the kahal, time of the assembly. A specific time when the people came together, not their day-to-day life on the road. And this word is used for people who gather together to plot evil, for war councils, religious gatherings, and even governing bodies such as the 70 elders. This word is not limited to usage for just religious gatherings, Rather, it can be used in any assemblage of peoples for any purpose. So first off, we need to recognize that this word does not mean the entirety of the people of Israel. Being a eunuch did not prevent a person from being counted as part of Israel or from worshiping the God of Israel. Instead, we should perhaps view the distinction here as similar to our own immigration laws here in the U.S., We have distinctions of what a person who has come to America is allowed to participate in various roles. A person with a green card cannot participate in all areas of public life, even though they are protected by our laws and have the same basic rights of everyone who is part of the nation. Green card holders cannot vote, cannot enter the military, cannot serve as judges or lawyers or get elected to public office. They can be part of the people but not participate in areas of governance. And governance in ancient Israel included priestly duties as well as Nazarite vows. Now, this is simply an analogy, and it does break down at a point. But I think that it helps us to get a picture of just what is happening here. Now, the real issue that is present is that we are not specifically told whether the exclusion for the eunuch was a broad stroke that included every eunuch as a way of preventing those who had previous allegiances and offices of power, whether governmental or religious from serving in offices of power in Israel, and some innocent people just happened to get caught up in the net? Or was this a command that was intended to prevent only those who had voluntarily or not served in these offices in another nation from gaining a position of power in Israel? And herein lies the distinction. Were those who were the victim of some sort of terrible accident prevented from entry into the full participation of public life as a citizen of Israel? 
And I think that is the issue for most people. We're all eunuchs prevented from worshiping the God of Israel. And to this, when we compare this text to all other places in Scripture that mention eunuchs, I don't believe that to be the case for one moment. It looks as if this command was intended to keep those with potential mixed loyalty, or those who had been tainted by unholy service, from reaching an office of leadership in Israel. And why would having a eunuch in a leadership position bear witness in any way? Well, it tells the world that the king is afraid of those who serve him in the realm of government. And for a government that's supposed to operate in the image of God, this would bear witness about who that God is, afraid of being usurped. And from the perspective of the male prostitute or temple prostitute of any kind, well, the priests are a symbol of the God that they serve. And the allowance of a male temple prostitute to participate in any way, even half-heartedly, such as giving tithes and offerings that were accrued from the service, would tell others that God allowed this kind of action to be accomplished in Israel. Now, there's a lot more that could be said to track this topic through Scripture from here and to demonstrate where it is where it is that I came to this conclusion. But this is just the first verse, and I've already spent a lot of time on the topic. It comes down to this. The kahal seems to, in this case, be referring to serving in positions of authority in the land of Israel. So moving on to verse 2 through 8, we find very similar rules applied to other cross-sections of humanity. First off, in verse 2, we find the mamzer. And once again, translators have not done us any favors. In many translations, the word that is used here is the word bastard. And we understand bastard to be a child without a father. But this is not a person that was simply born out of wedlock. Instead, a mamzer is a person who was born of one of the forbidden unions of Leviticus 18 and 21. So, more specifically, it's a child that's born of an incestuous relationship. And this is highlighted in the very next verse. An Ammonite and a Moabite shall not enter the Kahal. Now, the reason given is because they did not meet Israel with water. But there is an unstated reason for this prohibition. Genesis 19.36-38 Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father, and the firstborn born a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the children of Ammon to this day. The Moabites and Ammonites were a product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. A mamzer shall not enter the congregation for ten generations, and guess what? Descendants of Moab and Ben-Ami, even though they are technically family, they cannot enter into the kahal for ten generations. This is not just happenstance. The stated reason is their lack of kindness and compassion and their involvement in the incident with Balaam. But the unstated reason also exists. Now, at this command, it's usually pointed out, well, Ruth entered the congregation, and she's just approximately three generations after this command was given. And there are four ways to handle what happened with Ruth. First is to say, well, this ten-generation time limit was started with Moab and Ben-Ami, in which case there's no problem, as Ruth was likely ten generations removed from those forefathers, and so would be allowed into the congregation. 
This view assumes that the kahal in these verses is speaking of becoming a citizen in Israel in any way. The second option is to recognize that this law is not prescriptive, and when a person, even a Moabite or a eunuch, clearly stated and demonstrated their shift in allegiance from their home nation and people to Israel, then an exception could be made. Allegiances were bound up in honor in the ancient Near East, and so a vocal declaration of a shift of allegiance would be enough in many cases, because this was the same as a vow. Whatever you say you will do, you do. The third way to handle this is to point out that Ruth entered the congregation through Leverite marriage, and so there was a conflict of command, and the weightier command for caring for the widow of the brother took priority over denying her entry due to her parentage. And the fourth way to handle the situation with Ruth is to interpret the word kahal as indicating service in government or priestly duties, in which case this is a non-issue because Ruth was not serving in either. Any one of these is a possibility when dealing with Ruth in connection to this command. So feel free to choose the one that suits you best. The fact is that each demonstrate that this rule was not as hard and fast or all-encompassing as many may make it out to be. Then there are the Edomite and the Egyptian. For them, because there is a history, the limits of entry into Israel's kahal is only three generations. From when? No idea. We aren't told. Presumably, this time limit is from the time of Israel leaving Egypt. This means that the generation after the conquest could begin to include the people in the kahal, whatever that means in this context. So how does this flow from the idea of bearing true witness? Well, the people on this list, they've all shown a disregard for the ways of God or are descendants of those who did. A child of incest? The sons of Lot? The ways that their descendants treated Israel in the travels? Even Egypt and their oppression of Israel and Edom and their refusal to allow Israel to pass through their land. Each of these situations speaks of bearing witness to the world about our God. These people chose to protect themselves rather than to care for a vulnerable population that they had come into contact with. The lesson here being that we should be careful to not do the same. When we encounter those who are vulnerable, it is our duty to help, even if it makes us vulnerable, even if we don't like them very much. And in verse 9, the text then shifts. When you are out on campaign, there are some things that you should do. A man who has a nocturnal emission is to be ejected from the camp until he is clean. Again, there are several things going on here that appear to be the reason for this type of treatment. First, there is the stated reason. Hashem walks in the camp, and this kind of emission makes a person ritually unclean, and Hashem's presence and uncleanness are not compatible. Second, Israel didn't have prostitutes among their camp followers as most armies of the age did and the wives did not come on campaign. This means either a self-inflicted emission, or it means an unattended emission in his sleep. Either way, this speaks of a man whose mind is not on the task at hand. The second thing to do on campaign is to set up latrines. Again, because God walks in your midst, so don't go pooping just anywhere. Go outside the camp and dig a hole. Now, the second command is usually applied by those who are unlearned to any place in Israel. Those living at home were to carry a spade with them and to go outside the camp or the city and to dig holes, they say. 
But this is not the case. This instruction is directed toward those who are on a military campaign. Now, this might seem like a no-nonsense instruction, but I assure you it is not. All through history, it was common for soldiers to simply defecate wherever they needed to, in or out of camp. We have accounts of Nazi soldiers simply defecating in the corner of the houses that they occupied as late as World War II. And similar stories have come out of the recent conflicts in the Middle East. Now, to us as modern Westerners, this seems like a simple assumption. To us, it's an unstated fact that you create a latrine for situations like this. But in the ancient world, this kind of thing needed to be said. And once again, these items speak of what Israel was on campaign to do. They were not there to take advantage of the women in the cities that they conquered. They were not there to pollute the land that they were taking. These things go directly against what Israel stands for and fights for. In verse 15, we're told that if a slave runs from his master and arrives in your realm of influence, then you are not to seek to return the slave to his master. You are to let him dwell in your midst and not oppress him. Once again, we find a direct contradiction to how slavery was handled here in the U.S. Instead, when a slave escapes, we, as the image bearers of God who wish to tell the world of the God that we serve, we are to give him his freedom and allow him to be free. A slave that escaped had likely suffered at the hands of an abusive master, so don't send him back to that situation. Verse 17 through 18 speak of something that I've already mentioned earlier in this lesson, but it goes much further back than even that. Back in Leviticus, we recognize that unlike so many other ancient religions, the worship of Hashem does not in any way include any kind of sex acts. You see, in ancient cultures, it was an honorable thing to give a daughter or even a son into the service of one of the various gods. But in Israel, this sort of thing was not to happen. Hashem does not require or include sex acts as part of worship, and so there is no need to give daughters and sons into the profession of cult prostitute. Even if it makes a lot of money. Even if the proceeds could be applied to a good cause. Verse 19 through 20 then present the case where lending to a fellow Israelite was not to be done with the hope or expectation of making money. Lending in Israel is a matter of helping out a brother. The nations, however, they can be lent to for the purpose of profit. Now, to some, this seems contrary to the idea of caring for the poor. How can a God who says that he cares for the poor allow lending for profit at all? And then answers come down to one simple fact. The nations are not the inheritance of Hashem. Israel is his people. The nations, simply by being the nations, they are enemies or opposed to Israel. When the day of judgment comes, if you are not part of Israel, a transition that only happens through the blood of Yeshua, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. This is a truth as old as Israel. If you are not Israel, you do not belong to Hashem. But all who are part of Israel are to be helped, assisted, and protected in every way possible. Verse 21 through 23 are probably the clearest commands in this section that deals with bearing witness, and in this case, the witness that is being born is the witness of your own intentions for the future. We often think of bearing witness being about speaking of what you have seen of others. But witnessing is more than just simply speaking of what others have done. 
Witnessing includes speaking of what you do. If you vow to do a thing, then be sure that you do it, especially if that vow includes a vow of sacrifice. But this command includes something of great value. If you abstain from taking a vow, there is no sin in this. This is something that Yeshua echoes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 34-37. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by the heaven because it is God's throne, nor by the earth for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king, nor swear by your head because you are not able to make one hair white or black. But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no, and what goes beyond these is from the wicked one. And whatever goes beyond this is from the wicked one. Wait, what? But but there are commands in the Torah that speak of taking vows. There is a sacrifice that is part of taking a vow. What does Yeshua mean that anything that goes beyond yes and no is from the wicked one when Hashem gives allowance for vows to be made? The matter at play here is that when you vow and then you fail in that vow, you have sinned. And sin is a thing that gives access to the enemy into your life, and this access will continue until you then repent of the sin. It doesn't even take action on your part to break a vow. A vow can be broken by any number of circumstances. For example, the Nazarite vow was broken by simply being in proximity to a corpse. The one who took the vow did not intentionally do anything to break the vow, and yet the vow was broken and had to be started all over again. And I think that's the point Yeshua is making. You cannot sin if you abstain from taking a vow. But if you do take a vow, you are opening yourself up for failure and sin, and it doesn't even take you for this to happen. Rather, simply say yes and no and let that be that. Do not give opportunity to the devil to have a foothold in your life. And as the chapter ends, the command that comes the closest to theft in this section is spoken of. But we spoke of that earlier, and so we're going to move on. Now, in the beginning of chapter 24, then, we read of the allowance that is made in Israel for divorce, for breaking the covenant of marriage. Now, there are many out there who hold divorce up as a great sin, and passages from the New Testament are trotted out and used as proof texts of this. But the fact is that there are two terms and ideas that are being presented in the New Testament as contrasts to each other. The first idea is divorce. This is the breaking off of a marriage and the severing of the marriage covenant by introducing a new document that overwrites the covenant document that was made in the beginning. This is the certificate of divorce that we read of here. But there was another practice in the ancient Near East that was all too prevalent, and that was the practice of putting away a spouse. This is ending the marriage without going through the proper channels of severing the marriage contract. In the Greek words for these, apostasian means divorce, and apoluo means putting away. And in the ancient Near East, these were technical terms. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when we read the following section, we really need to get to the original text to discover what's being said. First, let's read it in the ESV, and we'll see the issue there. Matthew 5, 31-32 It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. 
and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, any divorce for any reason other than adultery means that neither one can marry again without committing adultery. But that's not what the original Greek says in this place. Let's read the same passage in the ISR, the translation that I use, because the ISR translate this passage more correctly. Matthew 5, 31-32 And it has been said, whoever puts away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever puts away his wife, except for the matter of whoring, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman that has been put away commits adultery. Now we see here clearly the differences in the terms of put away and divorce. Anyone who seeks to end his marriage must give his wife a certificate of divorce. And anyone who does not do this, except for in the case of adultery, then causes the one who's been put away without a certificate of divorce to commit adultery when and if they do remarry. And we see that clearly here in Deuteronomy 24. The man and woman divorce. They go their separate ways. The woman gets married to another man and presumably ends up in divorce or potentially death as well. Now, this is where the abomination of this chapter comes in. The abomination is not that the woman got remarried and it was not that the woman got divorced. The abomination and the sin is when the man and the woman who had originally been married, then divorced, then remarried to other people and divorced again or had their spouse die, they then decide to get back together. It's the getting back together after having been with someone else, after having been married, that is the abomination. The fact is, divorce is a very real, very sad, and very necessary thing in our world. Why? Because men's hearts are hard. Because sin is real. And because this world is broken. Divorce is not the ideal utopian solution. It is the best case scenario in some cases. And if you track everything that the New Testament has to say on this subject in the original language or in translation that's consistent, then you will find this to be the case. Divorce is not a sin. Putting away without their certificate of divorce leads one to sin. But what about the passage that says, God hates divorce? Well, let's look at that passage and see if that's truly what this passage says. Uh, Malachi 2.16 is where you can find this. It says, For I hate divorce, says Hashem, God of Israel. And the one who covers his garment with cruelty, said Hashem of hosts. So you shall guard your spirit and do not act treacherously. Unfortunately, there is a disconnect once again in the translation of this passage. You see, the way that this is translated is that it was decided to use indirect speech to translate this passage. Now, to get to the bottom of this, we need to go back to 8th grade grammar. There are two kinds of recording speech, or what a person says in English. Direct speech, which is a direct quote from another person. Or indirect speech, which is a paraphrase of what someone else has said. And this passage... The way of translating the Hebrew as, I hate divorce, says Hashem, is to use indirect speech. That's a problem. Because there is no indirect speech in biblical Hebrew. 
Now, modern Hebrew does have an allowance for indirect speech, but biblical Hebrew, it does not exist. You use direct speech or you don't report on the words of another. There's no other option when, when speaking about another's words. So a more accurate translation is, For he hated divorce, says Hashem, the God of Israel, and he covered his garments with corruption, says Hashem, God of Israel. And be careful of your souls and do not betray. So what is this passage talking about? Who is it that's saying that they hated divorce? Well, speaking of a man who desires to no longer be married to his wife, but rather than divorcing her, he simply puts her away or he allows her to just lounge and waste away in his own house. And it's this man who says, I hate divorce. Why? Well, because of the shame, because of the hassle, because he wants to hurt her, whatever the reason is. And the man hates divorce, and so he puts away his wife without first annulling the covenant. Or he allows her to lounge around in his house, not caring for her needs, not keeping up his end of the marriage contract. And in so doing, this man is acting treacherously toward his wife, the companion of his youth, because for all intents and purposes, he is forcing her into a life of adultery. We spoke of this last week, and like it or not, women could not exist on their own in the ancient Near East. They needed support from the outside, a husband, a community, etc. There were very few professions that a woman could engage in to make money, and the most prevalent was prostitution. The most acceptable was remarriage or a sugar daddy. Either way you slice it, the result was adultery. And why was this? Because the original marriage covenant still stood. So the question remains, is divorce a sin or not? And the answer is that it is not an active sin. It is a result of sin. Divorce is a necessary evil because of the hearts of men. But surrounding divorce is a whole slew of issues that can lead to sin. The primary being putting away your spouse, moving on, choosing someone else, simply leaving them behind without a proper divorce certificate. This was a huge issue in the ancient Near East, and it's this that was to be avoided. It's this that bears a false witness. Because the contract that bears your name is still in effect and has not been reversed, and this bears witness about your duties. But the one in the situation is not taking care of his duties. Besides, even Hashem engages in the metaphor of divorce in his dealings with Israel. Jeremiah 3, 6-9, And Hashem said to me in the days of Yoshiahu the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there committed whoring. And after she had done all these, I said, Return to me, but she would not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and committed whoring too. And it came to be through her frivolous whoring that she defiled the land and committed adultery with wood and stone. Now, this is just a metaphor. We need to understand this. This is not an actual divorce as we read of here. How do we know? It's because the following verses say this in Jeremiah three twelve through 13 
Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, O black-siding Israel, declares Hashem. I shall not look on you in displeasure, for I am lovingly committed, declares Hashem, and I do not bear a grudge forever. Only acknowledge your crookedness because you have transgressed against Hashem your God and have scattered your ways to strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares Hashem. Israel could return. All they had to do was repent. Now, unfortunately, this topic has been abused and has been misunderstood for a very long time. And these misunderstandings have left spouses stranded in abusive, destructive, and dangerous relationships simply because, well, there's no adultery, and so divorcing is a sin. This, in my opinion, is a travesty that needs to stop. The covenant of marriage can be annulled. In the case of adultery, it has already been annulled, and so nothing more is needed according to Yeshua. Your local laws, on the other hand, might say something else, so consult them before just moving on. In other cases, though, a couple can divorce, but according to Torah, only if there is a matter of nakedness. Now, what does that mean? Well, that discussion rages on and on and has been for a long time before Yeshua. I don't think that I'll be able to add anything to that particular discussion today. These latter parts of the book of Deuteronomy, they are truly difficult to parse when we approach them from a Western point of view. There are so many differences between the ancient culture and our own, and this is even worse when we don't recognize how to categorize these later commands as expansions of the Ten Ideals. But when we see it through this light, it helps us to draw that much closer to the truth that underlies them. And the ideal of not bearing false witness, it does not stop at what we tell about others. Bearing false witness is about acting before the world in the character of our God, living according to our word and accurately representing the reality around us. But most of all, bearing a true witness is about properly acting in the character of our God, walking in his ways and properly bearing his image, first and foremost as the means of showing love to those around us, but just as importantly, not as a second thought, but as a parallel thought, that through our actions, we might draw others into the kingdom of our God. Bearing witness to our God is one of our primary purposes as citizens of Israel. And by doing so accurately, we can bring life to the world around us, just as he has given life to us. So Deresh Chai, Seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deris Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deris Kai. As we... Seek life. Shalom.